Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with me, Russell Brand. This week I spoke to... I didn't spock to anyone. It's not what I do. You can't spock to people, can you? Can you? I spock to... I spock to... I spock to somebody in the bus. The other day and I looked down the bed with contempt. They said I looked like I put on a couple of pounds. I spoke... With Dr. Shafali, Dr. Shafali in the Ferrari. She's unbelievable, <laughs> is what I will say. She's a world-renowned wisdom teacher. Teaches, she happens to have a very beautiful face. Dr. Shafali is a world-renowned wisdom teacher who teaches workshops and courses both online and in person. Her new book is out. We'll put a link to that new book in the description. It's called something to do with confidence and stuff. It's not written down here. But anyway, she talks about it in the podcast. We'll drop it in somewhere. You should get a new book. You should read all her books. Her first book, The Conscious Parent, has been endorsed by... Get ready for this, guys. Oprah. Oprah Winfrey. It's one of the most profound books on parenting she has ever read. Hey, have you signed up to my mailing list yet? Russellbrand.com. Get on there. Send like these nice videos where I give you unique... Well, I don't know if they're unique. They might be, for all I know. They're utterly droll and trite and tiresome. But I would say they're good. And uh, you'll feel like you belong to a little community, because you will. And one day, one day after all this madness, it will be a physical, real community. Look at my YouTube channel and I'll get some uh, good free spiritual videos down your neck. If you want to chat to me online, you can. Twitter, I'm at Rusty Rockets. Everywhere else, I'm at Russell Brand. Let's get into this Dr. Shafali podcast now. She's uh, a great communicator and talks essentially about how you've got to address your own damn problems before bringing anything into relationship. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not a successful route. Yes, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Dr. Shfali, it's a great um, pleasure to have you on Under the Skin. Thank you very much for appearing virtually with us. Of course, it's my pleasure. Um, I suppose like most parents to be honest my motivation in talking to you was twofold one because you are one of the foremost experts in parenting in the global conversation have a great social media following and very influential and that's good for us as a high pro- you're good for us as a high profile guest but also as a pro- as a parent like when i've spoken to like say Brené Brown or Gabor Maté other medical professionals my motivations are personal. What the hell should we do with our children? <laughs> it's really hard, you know, because on one level, we should all be spiritual wisdom, truth seekers, consciousness raisers of our own evolution before we become parents. And yet, it's through the parenting journey that we're afforded the greatest portal to achieve that. So it's really difficult If we are open to understand that the parenting process is the portal to understanding your own past and healing your own wounds, then you're going to really activate yourself in this journey. But most people are not open to that. They're not open to to raising their own consciousness. So then they, quote unquote, use their children 
as pawns, just like they were used. And so continues the dysfunctional generational pattern over and over again. This doesn't mean that we don't screw our children up. My kid is royally screwed up, thanks to me. But I am using this moment, these challenging moments to really look in the mirror. And if we could do that in all relationships, but especially in this most intimate one, then we have an opportunity to keep healing. But but what's happening on the contrary is we keep having the children, but we don't disrupt the patterns. So then we just keep having children to keep, you know, enduring suffering. You know, the buck has to stop somewhere. And this doesn't mean we're perfect. This doesn't mean it's a destination we have to arrive at. But it does mean that we have to take this seriously and end the suffering somewhere. It's, thank you, it's commonly understood that we find it hard to observe our own pathology, particularly in real time. Doctor, can you give me a, an example of, of how you have perhaps in retrospect noticed how a part of your parenting has been as a result of your own trauma or need to evolve? You know, an example of where you've retrospectively gone, oh, wow, I shouldn't have done that. I wouldn't do that again. That's how I would do that in future. Oh, my goodness. It's every day. But a big theme that's uh, personal to me, which may resonate with your audience, is that I grew up in India as this Indian woman, which is a prototype of someone who is the ultimate people pleaser. And I learned to abnegate the self. You know, I learned to martyr myself. And I thought that's what it meant to be a really kind and good person. So this is my classic mold. And then on top of that, my temperament was of a very sympathetic, sensitive person, intuitive person. So put that together and you have this bleeding empath. So most of us, so just to digress, to just let other people know how they can deconstruct this for themselves. We grow up in a, in a childhood uh, culture, right? In, a, in, a, in an ambiance that gives you certain prototypes of how to get love. And so mine was, you get love this way. You get love by being disobedient, uh, self-abnegating, deprecating uh, <laughs> mess of a girl who doesn't know who she is, but you suffer You suffer the, the self, but you give to the other. The other is glorified. This was my prototype. Each one of us has a prototype of how we were taught subconsciously to receive love, to receive validation, to receive worth. And many of us mold to that very quickly, very quickly. So that's the, the fundamental prototype we are raised with. But then in addition to who we are as humans, now if had I been a rebellious kind of person, I would have ended up with a different prototype. You know, I would have rebelled. I would have become an addict maybe because I couldn't have uh, molded to that pleaser, right? So I would have gone the other way. So it depends on what our childhood ambiance was plus who we are temperamentally. And these two, the nature nurture, is, is a very key factor in observing your patterns. So, uh, so that was my pattern. And I ended up with in many relationships where my boundaries were violated. So for me, as a parent, the hardest thing that I had to really learn, and I'm still terrible at it, my daughter caught on at the age of seven, how terrible I was in creating boundaries. And she would say, oh, I just need to ask mom 10 times. And the 10th time she's going to say yes, she just learned it. And that's what happens. Our children just learn how to play us in our wounds. And the opportunity then is to see, to look in the mirror. So I began to see that I was unable to create boundaries, not because 
of what my child needed. Like she didn't need loose boundaries. It's because I was so inherently afraid of being seen as the bad one because I so was attached to the image of this pleasing person. So I had to really detach from that image, right? We're all married to an image. And my image was this always say yes, but I was ruining my daughter and I, and I have ruined her in many, quote unquote, ruined her. I have, uh, you know, wounded her in many ways, confused her in many ways by this bleeding empath desire to please. Because what's with the bleeding empath is that we say yes, yes, yes for years and decades. But man, when we say no, when we decide it's a no, we just abandon everyone. We just burn the house down, you know. So it's confusing for a child, you know. And I've had to see myself in the mirror. And it was wretched at first to observe that in me, that I was so wounded, so attached to my ego of wanting to be the pleaser that I couldn't serve my child in the way my child needed to. So that's one prototype. But there are other prototypes, you know. There's the negligent parent. There's the over-obsessed with control parent. There's the power-tripping parent. You know, there's all different sorts of parents. I was the pleaser parent who suffered in boundaries. And then, so we have to really deconstruct who we are based on our nature, nurture, syndrome, and, and be brave enough to break the pattern. You know, so I had to learn to break the pattern and let go of this desire to be the, the Mahatma, you know. I still have it though, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got a lot from that. Um, when you talk about prototypes, it makes me wonder about archetypes and it makes me wonder about essence. I wonder how your um, siblings uh, evolved through your childhood and, and if they have comparable challenges or distinct ones. Definitely, you know, especially in heavily traditional cultures like India, where tradition is lauded, but it's actually a great suffocator of the essence. In those cultures, you know, males and females have very defined gender roles. So... Uh, called man and woman, how to be a man and how to be a woman. So my brother, uh, I only have one sibling and he's male. So he was prototypically, uh, archetypally raised to be a man in that culture. And I'm sure suffered his own demons. You know, I remember my father would be so hard on him to succeed, but never hard on me. But I was told, you know, do you know how to cook? You know, how are you going to adjust in your in-law's house? So I was given different messages he was given different messages. I rebelled, though, eventually and did leave India because I knew I was suffocated in my essence and I had to leave. You know, for him, maybe he didn't leave because he wasn't suffering so much. You know, it's a it's it's advantageous to the male in those cultures, you know, but for a woman who had this also this other side to her that was rumbling of the need to discover her essence. I then had to leave. You have no choice at some point. You have to leave to discover who you are. So all of us are leaving in some way. We're always departing. Do we, how far do we abandon our authenticity is the question. You know, how many years do we abandon it till we return home to it? Where did you go and what, was there a pivotal moment that uh, made you realize that you required a kind of uh, severance from your family of origin in order to become yourself? Yeah, I think the first thing, uh, and I see this in all my clients as well, is a physical separation. You know, we need to separate in form to discover who we are in the formless. So I had to get the F out of India. So I was clamoring to leave at the age of 12 
I got to get out. I got to get out. I just knew physically there needed to be separation. And it's really the process that I take my clients through too. And they're very scared to physically separate. But we have to go on a journey. So I left and came to America and went to California, to San Francisco. And then I immediately, immediately within six months, uh, went on a Vipassana meditation retreat at the age of 21. And I began to discover my formless, authentic self. So my process was immediate. I left and then I left. So I left uh, in the form and I began departing in the formless as well from mainstream culture and then began a a long journey of self-discovery through meditation. I mean, really, while I'm psychological in my foundation, I'm more meditative and contemplative. And that really freed me. But it still took decades to ultimately be brave enough and bold enough to really be my authentic self. It took years and years and years. What challenges do you face with this, um, well, superficially at least, conflicting set of ideals, one around a formless, one could say, spiritual ideals, and these rather more material, evidence-based, procedural ideas that come from medicine, even in a more... um, amorphous field like psychology or psychiatry this is still sort of formulated are there challenges and how do you mesh those two ideas together yeah so i always look at every single challenge through the form and the formless the the both the lenses that i have so i understand form but i understand it through the lens of formlessness i never let formlessness leave me so for example right now we're in this virus pandemic right form. We're being attacked on the form level. Our our physical is being compromised. There is, you know, we have to have social distancing, all these form-based challenges. But really on the formless level, nothing has changed, right? On the formless level, this is the eternal impermanence of the transience of life. Like what's new? On the formless level, the universe is like, what's new, right? Nothing's new. The mortal is going crazy because he's realizing, she's realizing her mortality, Really, on the on the formless level, it's the it's the greatest desire of every Zen master, right? And now we're learning this, like now. So nothing has changed. So on the formless level, we are eternal. So the perturbations on the form level, I understand and I have compassion for, but with humor, no, and with a, a lightness of being. So I help parents see that they're just caught up in the myopic moment, and none of it really matters on the formless. And I help them detach from their egoic expectations of how this moment should be and how their child should be. Because in the grand scheme of the universe, this is a speck. And so I help parents to release their control. And their control is only coming out of scarcity because they think this moment is significant. And it isn't, you know. So I named my daughter Maya, which means illusion, to remind me that if I think she's mine (laughs) or this matters, it's an illusion. So to but 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 understanding we have form based limitations. So I have compassion for that. But we can navigate the form so much better and easier with play if we understand formlessness. And what's missing is that people typically struggle to understand the formless elements of life, you know, and we just get obsessed with the form, the ego, the density of this moment. How many of the challenges that we face as parents and as people do you think could be 
ameliorated or at least improved by accessing what would once have been known as the sacred but is now difficult even to refer to and I know you use the word formless a hundred percent of human suffering is from the mental attachments to the form all our suffering is because we want things to match the form-based expectations what culture has told us is important you know you and I were talking pre-interview about how the education system has not wanted to miss a beat and has sent curriculum home with grading systems and I've been protesting that saying you have to adapt. Now we're, we're truly in the formless level of education. Can we not appreciate that for a moment, right? But people are so attached thinking that that is a prescription. And we're seeing now more than ever, there is no prescription. Life is always unexpected. But we, we fossilize life because we want the illusion of certainty and grades and achievement and outcome and zip codes and 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 the the number of cars in your driveway somehow make us feel like we are you know and we get an identity from this outside uh, these outside accoutrements but you and i know how false that is how deluded that is what an illusion and then we suffer so when our job is taken away we suffer when our kid doesn't match the expectation we suffer but who creates the suffering we do because we've imposed an expectation. We have this checklist in our pocket, check, 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 check. And now we see life doesn't work like that. And if it did work like that, how sad for you, because you really thought life works like that. You know, the good child, I always talk about the, that good child, that obedient child. How sad for you if you only have good children, you know, because you really think that you're amazing and that you're doing something and you're not. You know, so I love the quote unquote bad kid because now the bad kid makes you turn on your head and, and shatter your illusions. What do you think is the primary lesson that we're taught by, by children that we can't control when you encounter the strength of spirit that a child brings into your home and watching that evolve and develop and me speaking personally, my sort of... The inability to control it but also a kind of my kind of awe at, at, at my older daughters in particular because you know she's evolving more so I've known her longer um that that to see like this sort of strength this character this spirit this independence I mean that in a kind of a literal way like you said with your, the naming of your daughter I quite early recognized there is something present this is not just sort of like a genetic past the parcel this, this, this is something has come from somewhere else. Yeah, and, and it's such a fascinating juxtaposition of the my, you know, they are in some ways ours, because for many of us who have them biologically, they do share this DNA and they do share the physicality and the traits and the woman will say, hell, she's mine or he's mine. He, look at my body, I'm wrecked because of this child. So it's the juxtaposition of the my and the soul, not mine, right? So when you realize that, that this child I thought was mine, but damn it, this indomitable spirit that cannot be controlled and the awe, but the humility that comes with it is the lesson, you know, the ego, non-ego, the form, formlessness, the non-duality of that is the most brilliant spiritual lesson of all. You know, it's mine, but not mine at all. And uh, what a brilliant lesson. You know, we cannot control our children. I mean, it's just 
absolutely a delusion to think that we could. But most parenting paradigms, the traditional ones, espouse control. And I come along and people like me or, you know, many, I'm sure there are many who say that it's an illusion and people don't like that. You know, parents resist me and uh, walk out of rooms and get angry with me because they think that I'm espousing that they are not important. You know, parents have tied their importance, their relevance to control instead of understanding this is a spiritual partnership. And, and you are the evolving one and they are the teachers. And you're not losing power when you look at life like that. You're gaining spiritual power because you're the taker. Don't you want to be the taker? But they don't want to be the taker because they're like, ah, you're just fooling me. You're, you're actually taking my power. And this is the sadness of the human psyche, right? We so want egoic dominance, even with our children, you know. You spoke about um, your upbringing being quite uh, traditional, certainly in with regard to the way that you and your brother identify with gender and the roles conventionally associated. You know, you're saying with your brother encouraged to be domineering or at least pioneering in yourself, a kind of in, a, encouraged uh, civility and passiveness and uh, sort of codependency in contemporary parlance. Um, I, I wonder though, I wonder though, what elements of uh, traditional Indian spiritual culture returned to you as you continued to evolve? If there were, uh, uh, along with the, uh, uh, along with the things that you've already described, which I can sort of see on a, I can plot on a map as belonging to conventional, even Western ideas. You know, there are ideas around duty and gender roles. And of course, there's distinctions between Indian and Anglophonic culture. But there are also, you know, strong comparisons and that can be drawn. Um, I I wonder, is there, are there some things that were distinct and distinctly spiritual in your upbringing that have been useful as you have evolved your perspective? Also, the second part of this question is that these systems of dominance that play out in parenting, do you think are just a reflection of other systems of dominance, i.e. the material over the spiritual, the male over the female, the, the, govern, the governing over the governed? Do you think that this is a sort of a reflection of a almost ubiquitous social template? Right, so let me answer the second one first. It is completely a reflection of religious and political templates. You know, obey thy parents, right? Obey God, obey. So this hierarchy that we have created as a system to control uh, the others is, is a prototype of, of all systems. So parenting then engenders the same patriarchy, the same hierarchy, the same uh, blind obedience to ritual and dogma that we see in other systems. And, and no wonder we keep perpetuating these systems because the child grows up with this prototype to obey thy parents at all costs, right? And it's, it's not the other way, it's unidirectional and it's looking upward. And we look to the sky for other guidance and this is how we're raised. And we're raised to be subjugated in the lesser than position. Who exalts their child as their teacher, right? Very few of us now in this current era, maybe a little bit. Um, and because we don't, and I'm not saying to, uh, you know, pedestalize your child, but certainly to revere them for what they're, they're bringing to us. And they're not puppets and they're not here to be seen, not heard. Uh, I mean, that is just insanity to me. 
because this is a living, breathing, spiritual, emotional being that has, is here to vibrantly interact with you. But because they're smaller in physical size, again, we get beguiled by form. We think they're smaller in might, in, in spiritual might, because again, only the eyes see and compute based on size. You know, how illusory is that? How illusory is size, right? So this is the delusion that needs to break, but it is a prototype of all other systems that are based on dominance, hierarchy, and abuse of that power. Um, so to answer that question. And then the other one about how my upbringing has influenced me besides the typical ways. You know, India is lauded for its wisdom. And it, and of course, great wis wisdom teachers have come from that part of the world. But it's not what I grew up with. Yeah, I grew, I cannot uh, pedestalize and romanticize the India I grew up in. The India I grew up in, and Indians will not like me saying this, uh, is highly traditional, is highly religious, it's highly hierarchical, and I didn't see any good there. However, the wisdom that I eventually got to be exposed to is coming from that land, so I'm so grateful. Um, but I can see both sides. You know, I don't romanticize or denigrate completely. Uh, India is the uh, capsule of both absolute <laughs> exploitation of the spirit and, on the other hand, the, the true wisdom and discernment and, and reverence for the spirit. It has both. But India has become corrupted in many ways. And we've lost what those great teachers taught us. The, the land that Buddha came from, the Buddha who he's known to be, um, is I don't see that anymore. You know, I used to run away from uh, blind religious fanaticism that I saw as a child. I didn't find the spirit being revered there. I saw blindness and I saw a dullness of the spirit, a trance-like seduction, uh, you know, like like an opiate, you know, and I saw that. And I, I, I ran away from that because I didn't see discernment. I didn't see a, a, an awakened heart. I saw a dull heart, a dulled mind that's following the masses. And, and to me, that's not uh, the awakening of the spirit. I had to run away to discover. And, and now I see the jewels of Indian wisdom, but I don't see it reflected in day-to-day -day India. All right, that's a kind of Occidental romanticization that I'm applying <clears throat> with my blanket on my head and my various religious tattoos of Durga and Ganesh and Krishna adorning my body, not recognizing that if you grow up in sort of a, an Indian city, it's just as materialistic as it is to grow up in Gray's Essex, where I grew up. Yeah, I think any blind devotion without an awakening of your own inner devotion can result in just another chattel mentality, just like your chattel to money. You know, how is it different? If you're blind to something on the outside without awakening your own devotional spirit to yourself, your own wisdom that you're part of this cosmos and not understanding your interrelationship. If you think you're lesser than, you're just then lesser than to money. You're lesser than to fame, lesser than to power. It's the same thing. It is lesser than to a devotional being outside. Giving power away blindly is dangerous. When you talked about it, it uh, exalting the child it made me feel about how sometimes with our children I've really felt in a really sort of a basic and sort of animal way oh this person's powerful I'm dealing with a powerful person and because 
they happen to be a child and I happen to be an adult, that's something that's going to be reordered over time, like a natural hierarchy will um, suggest itself. How do you honour that exaltation without uh, giving that child, as you talked about earlier, a, a kind of boundless freedom that could lead, in fact, to fragility around this sort of construction of self? So it could. So it could. So how do we prevent it is by the parent working on themselves, right? So if the parent exalts the other, again, without becoming whole themselves and uses the child to feel like I was on my way to using my child to fulfill my egoic idea of being the pleaser, then I would cripple her because I'm using her to fill my ideal. So while I was evolving, I began filling myself and becoming whole myself and exalting myself. So when I'm exalting myself, I now can exalt the other, right? That's what namaste means. The God in me reveres the God in you, but it doesn't ignore the God in me. So we can now be in a mutually reciprocal relationship and I can take charge because I need to pay the bills and I need to in, you know, ensure your safety. But on the spiritual and emotional level, I'm attuning to what lessons you're going to teach me as well. It's not unidirectional. I exalt you, but I also exalt myself. So it's two beings understanding we're whole. Just because one is smaller doesn't make them half. We're whole beings contributing in our own rudimentary or non-rudimentary ways. But parents, because we're deluded in our power and we think bigger is mightier in spirit, we, we, we just don't even listen to the child. You know, we're not even attuning to who it is they are. You know, parents come to me all the time to fix the child. And, you know, when I, when I tell them to leave the child outside or I don't need to see the child, they get confused. They're like, ah, oh, maybe you didn't hear me. It's not me who has the problem. I need you to, to fix Johnny or fix Amanda. And I say, I heard you right the first time. And because we have to fix them, I need to talk to you. And then after three sessions, they're sweating because they're tired of the mirror. And they're like, come on, when are you going to call Johnny in? And I go, I'm not. Didn't you understand? I'm not. I'm going to first make you aligned to your messaging, to who you are, and attune you to yourself. Because if you're not attuned to yourself, you'll never be attuned to your child. And the parents get pissed off. You know, even in my book, they tell me, honestly, that they'll be turning the pages waiting for the part of fixing the child. And they're like, damn it, she swindled us. You know, it's not about the child at all. Now, is it some about the child? Of course, because I'm teaching the parent to attune to that child. So it is about that child, not the sibling. It's about that child. So it is about the child, but it's about how the parent can best parent that child. And for that, the parent has to shift and transform from inside. In a more materialistic and conventional understanding of, say, psychology or even neurology, there would be an assumption that, oh, come on, you can't talk to a child like an equal because their frontal cortex isn't evolved. They won't have access to that kind of post-enlightenment rationalism, etc. But um, if you have a more spiritual or essential approach then I suppose there is more fluidity, but it would seem less certainty. What is the actual practice, doctor, that um, you, you would suggest to me or any other parent for bringing these skills to bear on a child? Like how, you know, I feel like getting to know myself is is my bloody life's work. You know, it's all I do. It's all I all I thought about for about thirty years. You know, so like, uh, you know, how, how do you see it? What is it as a practice? Yeah, but look what you just said. 
you know, you said that uh, many of us will say that we can't treat them as equals because their cerebral cortex hasn't developed, correct? Yeah, that's the assumption, yeah. Yeah, but look at, look at, with that, we discipline them as if there are equals. This is the, this is the BS of the traditional parenting paradigm. I'm saying treat them as equals in terms of being spiritual teachers, but attuned to who they are on their social, emotional, psychological, intellectual development. I'm saying attuned to who it is they are on that development and titrate your parenting to that, which means understanding where they are in their cerebral cortex development and their neurotypical tendencies. Attuning to who your child is, not who you want them to be. Now, so exactly what you said, parents would say, they're not my equals. You know what? Look at their brain. It's not developed. I say, exactly. So why are you disciplining them with a whip and a belt and a timeout when their brain is not developed? To my point, right? Then they're like, ah, then they have nothing to say, right? Really, because their premises are based on regurgitating BS from traditional parenting paradigms that say, oh, you know, I just want to have control. And so when I show them that conscious parenting is attuning, not getting it right, because we can't get it right, but it's about attempting to align your being with their being on all levels, understanding psychology. And, you know, we need to understand psychology. You know, you and I are, like you said, on this fervent, constant self-reflection journey. Now, if you're not, I don't even know how you can survive, really. Um, So most people are not. So they look at the child, as traditional parenting has told them to, as this objectified other, to be a pawn in my fantasy and to make me feel good. And children are not here to make us feel good. They're here to understand who they are. You know, you and I came to it through, through some order, some more than others. That I want us to bequeath our children the freedom so they don't go through that order as much as we do. They will go through some order, but not as as we had to, you know, leave the country. You had to become an addict. You had to stop being an Oh, we, we don't need to do all that. If we could just give them a little bit of the, the space to stay in touch with who it is they are, because they're already pretty much ready to stay in touch. It's us who pluck them out of that inner knowing. They have inner knowing. I watched myself uh, as a parent seemingly necessarily take my children out of being in the moment, for example. Stop doing that. We're going to go here. You're going to love it there. We'll give you chocolate when you get there. You know, using all sorts of techniques to manage and control them. And I, I see in these behaviors, oh, this is the seed of making a child dependent on external contingency of using rewards to control a child. And yeah, as you uh, alluded to my background and my um, spiritual growth is predicated on addiction then recovery from addiction which as I'm sure you're aware requires a sense of awareness and detachment not only from chemical dependency but behavioral dependency all forms of dependency and uh, an ongoing lens through which to observe my own continuing development what I've noticed doctor is I'm very good at watching my wife and going hmm that's because my wife wife had these kind of relationships with her female sibling or this kind of relationship with her female parent and look she's challenged by this aspect of my oldest daughter but with myself man well I do remember speaking to Gabor Matty once about like children and 
saying like I don't I don't like saying no to them. I'm really good at play. I can, I'm strong sometimes, sometimes, but like I'm so I suppose you know to your what seems to be one of your central points that uh, uh, and to echo Philip Larkin, we pass on the faults that we had and or at least we react to the faults that we had and I can't bear the idea of these children not feeling witnessed or heard or or something I felt very strongly when I was young is you don't know me in here you don't know who I am in here and you know and that that sort of sense of separation I think is something that I you know was trying to mitigate and medicate through addiction and I really want both of them to feel like they are seen and they are understood and as much as is possible, and it seems like it's not especially possible, not bear down on them with my my complexes and my requirements. Already, my oldest daughter, I go, oh, come and give me a kiss. No! And I'm like, oh, wow, wow. Yeah, <laughs> because you, you so remembered what it felt like to be disavowed and your voice to be silenced. So that's what you're really trying to not continue. But saying no in the form-based world, I've discovered, is not such a treacherous monster because it's only in the form-based world. So if we're saying no, it's only for the form-based world. But we're saying, I hear you. I want to eat 16 chocolates too. I totally get it. But in the form-based world, it's a no, right? So I too was scared to say no for different reasons. But then I discovered I'm only saying no on the form-based level. So that's okay because form, we can all live without. But on the formless, I, I hear you or I'm trying to hear you. And we don't need to get it right, but we need to show an openness and a curiosity to at least be the space to take the criticism, to take the feedback, to hear the discordance between them and, and us. And if our children can just feel safe to express it, that is amazing. You know, my daughter said to me the other day, you know, your problem, you don't listen to your own teachings, of course. Um, and she said, you don't reflect, you only deflect. And I, and, and I just loved it. And I just went on and on. I was like, that is genius. That is amazing. You're right. I don't, def I don't reflect, I deflect. And she just felt so pleased that she just got to say her thing. And I didn't take it personally. And I, and I think that's what we're trying to do here. We're not trying to get it right. Yes or no. I thought the no was a mountain too, but then I realized the no is an illusion. It doesn't mean anything. It's the essence to essence, safety, connection, space, freedom. And then the form-based crap, get it wrong, get it right, who cares? You know, you brushed your teeth well, you didn't brush it well, you listened, you didn't listen. That's all occurring on the level of noise now to me. And I'm caring about the essence. So someone just wrote to me actually uh, a question on my page, on one of my pages. You know, you said, Dr. Shafali, that your daughter is sleeping at 5.30 every morning. She's 17. She's sleeping at 5.30 every morning. And she gets up at 3 and she's not doing her distance learning. But you said you're a 95% in terms of feeling amazing. How, is, how are the two possible? And it's possible because one is form and it's noise and one is formless. My formless connection with her is amazing. She's still skipping and dancing and we're laughing. But the form is effed up. <laughs> for sure <laughs> but who cares that's just form why don't get nervous about the form and that's where resilience ultimately lies right an end of suffering lies when you realize your yeah, form is always effing up it's never perfect you'll see 
you'll be like, ah, both my kids are potty trained. And then they're not, right? So don't get attached to that. Don't get attached to my child is an A student. And now then they're, they're not. They're, you know, they, they did a crime and they're in jail. Form will keep changing because that's the nature of form. And this virus is showing us that brilliantly. Like, oh, you were attached to your form. You wanted to go to Greece in the summer. Really? Uh-huh. Sorry. Life is life. Reality is reality. Get with it. It's the formlessness that is the eternal binding essence. So you're going to be good because you're, you're already in the formless and your children sense that. Children sense it. It's a sense. And they know they can be free. They can butt heads with you about showers and homework. And that's nonsense. That's noise. Who cares? That, we, that's the game of life. The formless is really where the, the spirit meets the other spirit. And if you got that down and you understand you have no control over their spirit, that's it. That, that's what you never had, what I never had. We felt controlled at the level of spirit. Do you have a way of uh, engaging children in a kind of practical understanding of the formless, by which I mean, do you explain to them ways of dealing with their emotion? Do you suggest meditation to them? You know, because it seems to me that my children, both of them are powerfully intuitively there in their very, very distinct and very, very different from one another ways. But when there is, uh, when there are challenges, when there is trauma, when there is failure, when there is suffering, it's like, like one of the things I sort of do intuitively, I, don't, I always tell them when they like, if they argue over an object, I tell them, look, you don't need to worry about objects. There's no problem with objects. Or like, even if it's food, yeah, look, you're like, we thank God we're not in a position where you need to fight about food or objects. You're not in that position. We don't need to worry about that. But like to explicitly engage children in the idea of God, formlessness, enlightenment. How, how, do you have those kind of conversations and, and how do you have them? Well, so two, two, two ways to answer that. One is on the formless and one is on the form. So let me do the form one with the objects. Even if you did not have enough spoons and they want that one spoon and now there is a temper tantrum of the century, we understand it through our wisdom of impermanence, that the waves are coming, the feelings are coming. Yeah, I understand you really want what you want. Me too. I get it and try not to laugh, but also don't get hooked into it, right? You know your kid is going to go through the waves and through meditation, you understand, you have to observe it. So it's very hard for parents to observe when their children are going through pain because we want to rescue. We want them to never feel disembodied and disenfranchised. All the feelings that we had as children, we project onto them. But in essence, children will be okay if they're allowed to just go through their feelings. I too used to intervene, rescue, give 10 chocolates because I couldn't tolerate being seen as the bad one, but I wasn't even being seen as the bad one. It was all my own story. So when my kid would say, bad mommy, mommy didn't give me the spoon, I would think I'm really a bad person. She's right. Oh my God, I'm a bad person, right? All my own crap. She was just in the moment saying, I want the damn spoon. Can I have it? And if you give it to me, you're the best mommy. And then you're the worst mommy, right? It's like feedback you and I get on social media. It's not real. It's all projection. Our children project. They're very self-absorbed too. They're coming from their little story, but they plug our story because we have a story. So our goal as meditators 
and spiritual seekers are to end our story, right? The more we end our story, we can be present for them. So who cares if there's no spoon spoon? It's all the same, right? So we understand that it's not going to kill them. It's not going to break them. They're going to be fine, spoon or no spoon. It's fine. So we always have that perspective. And um, the second thing about deeper contemplative, big, big questions about God, etc. You know, I believe in embodying it. So I, you know, don't follow any traditional external source of divinity. And so my daughter just observed that. And then she once came to me and she said, you know, what would I say, mom, if somebody asked me what my religion is? So I understood that's a form-based question. She's a survivor. She has to survive in the form-based world. Don't just tell her la-di-da because her five-year-old, <laughs> her five-year-old friend won't understand. Then she'd be bullied and I've set her up for a failure in the form-based traditional world. So I told her, I said, tell them technically, technically on paper. Then I said, choose. You know, her father is Jewish, uh, technically, and I'm Hindu, technically, and so not. So I said, choose. So I said, why don't you just say, since we live in white, a more white Jewish culture, why don't you say, technically, I'm Jewish? And to this day, she always says, when someone asks her, what's your religion? She says, well, technically, I'm Jewish. But she understands what that means. You know, it's only on the form-based level. On the formless level, she's nothing. And I've told her on the formless level, you are, you are nothing. You're not this religion or that. There's no question of religion. You are nothing, meaning you are everything. And so I've, I've tried to have those dialogues. And she'll tell me if she's around religious people. She's like, mom, shh. Like, shh. I'm like, okay, I don't worry. Like she understands that people on the form-based level who are attached to their own religious ideals may not understand what I'm saying in terms of this transcendent view that we are all one and all nothing and all just ether and all just energy. She's like, mom, shh. Don't talk like that here. So she already understands that mom is different and what to do. But I've given her the spoon to the bridge to deal with the form-based world. And now she can choose. She can choose. She can become orthodox tomorrow. You know, it, she knows she has all the choices. I said, it's all a journey anyway, whether you come to it directly, indirectly, however you want. This is your life. Like color it up. You want to go the long way, go the long way. I'm giving you the bypassed easy way, but I understand that you may want to find your own truth. Find your own truth, you know? Who am I to tell you how to live your life? I'm only here to get you, you know, to a, a place of relative sanity and safety. And, and then you're, you're, I'm always here, but you're kind of on your own to figure out who you are and who you're meant to be in this life. And because you and I, especially, you know, people like us have been through this tunnel and come through the other side. We know the tunnel was so important, right? So why would I want to take away her tunnel, you know? Much of what you've said about how you relate to parenting and both as a parent and as a parenting professional say, um, it seems it's derived from universal truths that are applica applicable throughout relationship. How, if not from your upbringing and presumably somewhat, you know, my, my guess is somewhat inspired by your early meditative and spiritual experiences, how did you arrive at this uh, particular viewpoint? And uh, how, uh, how is what you're saying as a, a parent applicable in, the, in uh, adult relationships, for example, in your partnership with your husband and in the woman you were prior to starting a family? So, 
when you learn about the ego and watching your ego and that you're not your thoughts through meditation, you think that it's, you know, a practice only for the mat, right? And it takes some time to realize, oh, it's not an idea. It's it's really happening in, in one's life. So it was an idea for me and it was a fascinating idea. It was a central idea of my life, but I never thought I would be so filled with ego in the most heart-filled relationship of my life. I just couldn't believe it. My daughter was three years old. I had been practicing now for 13 years. I thought I had this. I was a, in my PhD in clinical psychology, two, three masters already in psychology, meditating 13 years. I thought I had my ego tamed. And to see it roar with the most heartfelt related within this space where I was so quote unquote loving I was just stopped in my tracks and when I remember the day that I realized that that ego that ego that you've been battling it's here in this relationship with this little being and you are out of control with it and you're unconscious that moment was my moment of epiphany and like every all the stars aligned and I went holy shit No one's talking about this. Like, this is big stuff in the most because this relationship is supposed to be so beautiful and selfless. And I'm like, it's not selfless. The whole thing was constructed from my damn head. The reason I wanted her was from my ego. Everything is motivated by my ego. Damn it, nothing is selfless. And I remember it was a panic attack because I thought I was this virtuous, selfless parent. Like, in this relationship, I'm without ego. Yet in this relationship, I was with the most ego, the desire to have her was ego and I ask every all in all my workshops and conferences why did you have a child and they all go because I love children because I wanted children because I'm a good person I was like and what do you hear the I the I the I okay so can we just admit parents are not selfless we're having them for the self traditional parenting has told us we're selfless That is such a dangerous thing for our ego because in the name of selflessness, we can beat the crap out of them. In the name of selflessness, we can deprive them of love. You see, because we think we're martyred and we're not. When we realize we're full of ego, we become humble now. We're like, shut up. You're not selfless. You're using this child. So don't pretend you're teaching them the clarinet for you only because the three-year-old did not say, I want to play a clarinet. And my reason for being on earth is to become a, you know, a, a speaker of five languages. The kid did not say that to you. It came from your own ego. Admit it. You know, so when you admit it, you become humble. Now you create space. Now you back off. Now you begin to watch. It creates humility. You know, this idea that we're selfless and obey thy mother and father. Whoa, it's created this ego that's beyond, that's the monster. Why do we suffer in life? Because we suffer from the ego monster that our parents put within us, you know, and, and between us and our spirit. So so that that, that is, you know, something that, that is really important. And, and how does it translate to other relationships, you ask? Oh, my God. It, then you see it everywhere. If... The problem is we can't see it in the parenting. We can barely see it in others, but to see it in parenting, because we as parents were bequeathed this idea that we are to be in control. We are greater than. We, you know, are in charge. They are yours. They give your, you give them your name. They give them a name. It's too much power. So if we can't see it there, 
we'll never see it anywhere else. But if we see it there, you see it everywhere. You know, it's like you drive in New York, you can drive anywhere. It's like that. Now you see it everywhere because you're humbled. You're on your knees, you know, and it is everywhere. You know, it's just you didn't want to see it everywhere, you know, and you can leave your partner. You can leave the other adults in your life, but you can't leave your child, you know. And so this is where you're forced to confront it if you want to, you know, but who does? Very few people. One one percent of one percent. Yes, it's very difficult to accept the in invitation to have a true encounter with the self. And most of us will defer indefinitely rather than go through that pain. I regard my addiction also as a kind of a suspension of that development. And with what you're saying now about this time that we've been afforded admittedly in very difficult circumstances financially and medically for many people some of us myself i'm speaking for have been granted a kind of suspension a period of hermitage and reflection which to be candid doesn't differ in my case especially from my life ordinarily because you know shipwrecked on the other side of celebrity and fame I spend a lot of time indoors anyway. I've got young children. I like to be alone, but I speak to a lot of people and I talk a lot to people with mental health and addiction issues. And so much of the recovery from addiction is about belonging to a community and those communities other than virtually are somewhat suspended. So it means the onus has fallen upon meditative and spiritual practice prayer as in a petitioning for a higher self a deeper self and other self to come to the fore uh, and meditation of course yeah to develop this ability to observe and not immediately react i spoke to a friend of mine yesterday as a, a matter of fact and i hope he wouldn't mind me saying that he was calling me up in rage about an event that had happened where he felt he'd been slighted i talked to him about that rage and about how much of what he was feeling he was projecting and it took a, a while to negotiate that then he felt great sadness i watched the transition happen that as he let go of the rage sadness came in and i told him in this moment from the perspective of a fellow sufferer of a person that if i was in the fog of emotion i would would not be any further along the path than he was that the sadness is equally illusory equally transitory so i suppose like i am maintaining some connections and i am working on my own spiritual practices what um what are you doing and what do you suggest other people do uh, you know, just for personal mental health, given that you, from what you're explaining to me, doctor, however you're applying this wisdom, whether it's as a parent, as a worker, as a lover, as a person socially existing in the world, it seems to me that what you're saying is uh, a personal, authentic connection is uh, the foundational. What, what, what do you pr uh, suggest in this time? Well, like in everything, you have to go on this journey. You know, you can't be educated cerebrally and not be educated about yourself. So to be educated about yourself, there's a path. And teachers such as myself, you, we give courses, we teach, we open the, the doors of your awareness, we take off the veils of your delusion. And through self-awareness, step by step, you come into greater consort and communion with your deepest authenticity. It's a process. You have to want it, you have to seek it, and you have to educate yourself in this new 
path. It shouldn't be the new path. It should be the only path, really. And then others should be optional um, in your life, right? It should be the, the mainstay of your life is understanding yourself. Why understand the stars and the moon and uh, a field of, of science and not understand yourself? You can do that, but and understand yourself. I mean, you are your greatest mystery. You are your greatest exploration you're your greatest discovery and the reason we don't understand ourselves is because we have been trained to look outside from a young age at mother and father at the so-called powers to be supernatural and natural and this craning of the neck outward has caused an addiction a habit a codependency and this is how we look to the bank account to the image in the mirror to the number of social likes and not to the accolades, to the trophies. So this is how we have been conditioned. So to look within now is like a revolution. But it is it is the ultimate path. So to do it, you have to go on a path. You have to take courses. You have to read books. It's just like any other education. You can't know it without knowing it. You have to, and teachers are there, you know, and especially in, in crises like this, which afford a pause. We are now in a pause. We're in a tunnel, in a transition. How are we going to use this pause? Are we going to default to traditional reactionary methods of, of fear and control? Or are we going to use this opportunity to go, no, I need to learn how to cope better with the fear and control. And I now need to, for the first time in my life, I have some time, a pause, let me go and self-develop, you know, and take a course. So like I've given all my courses at a huge discount. I mean, all wisdom, most wisdom teachers are offering teachings right now because we understand that this is a golden opportunity. Yes, it's that when the rubber has met the road, we have hit rock bottom, it's a pause. Let's use this pause, you know, and how we're reacting to this virus is how we've reacted to every virus in our lives. You know, nothing new. We just on steroids, perhaps, exaggerated fear and control, but not new fear and control. So this is our opportunity to now finally combat the two demons of unconsciousness, fear and control. There's a tendency perhaps to fetishize novelty, to look at the external circumstances and how uh, global and vivid and cinematic and dramatic these conditions are and uh, not observe that, uh, as you have said, there is something essential happening that, you know, this COVID virus could end without anyone from your personal family being affected and then a week later the person you most dearly love dies and what was the coronavirus epidemic then in the landscape of your life you know and like that yeah this continues there is as you said near the beginning of our conversation that there there is always an external threat there is always an invitation to be fearful and now it seems that just through circumstance and through the modern condition and the amount of the uh, what uh, is, has been referred to as an infodemic as well information is traveling at epidemic rates and human beings can travel the world we're now suddenly confronted with our oneness the value of contact the power of contact the the uh, shock of isolation, the shock of being stripped of these concepts that this uh, carapace of concepts that concealed from us so artfully the, the truth of our being. But when correctly read, you can see the primal ink 
and colours of who we are on, ah, we create pantheons, ah, we create heroes, ah, we require comfort, we require consumption. Um, but of course, my fear, Doctor, and this is sort of, I'm just asking you because you're a guest on this podcast, my fear is that the this situation will ultimately be used precisely to further... Uh, implement fear and control based mentalities and ideologies and as you observed earlier the templates of domination that are experienced in a, a familial condition are experienced throughout society and my uh, concern would be that we will see a f sort of a, an instantiation of further control further fear and systems preserving themselves a resistance of these lessons, a resistance to the idea that we've been shown something important. 100%. The, the mass will stay the mass, fossilized, rigid, attached. This is the nature of human consciousness. You know, it's the awakening process occurs rare, rarely compared to the attachment process because of fear and control. So you're 100% correct. I'm not superbly optimistic yet. I know that I have to show up like you every day to shine the light and show the show whoever is willing to see that this is an opportunity. You know, I do this with parenting. This is an opportunity. Ah, missed the opportunity. Ah, missed another one. I know this is, I, I, when I was young and zealous and foolish, I was very attached to people awakening. You know, I thought it was my mission. I was here to, ch and I suffered. And I realized, oh, I'm attached. I'm attached just like they're attached. I'm just attached to a seemingly more noble ideal. But it's all BS at the end of the day because I'm attached. So now I'm not attached anymore, but I must show up and shine the light and show that there is a huge, formless, eternal truth that is being uncovered and unmasked here, which was always there, but you were so distracted. And now you're distracted with the seduction of this stealthy evil virus okay new distraction you know then it was the evil husband then it was the evil this and the evil that and there was always somebody evil now we've replaced it with this evil person virus but this virus is actually so quote-unquote the virus is neutral but it, it it's benevolent actually because it's teaching us that we are actually formless and we are virus we are bacteria. We are poop, pus, and guts. We are not this identification of, uh, you know, the Eiffel Tower and the Statue of Liberty, these uh, iconic monuments that we've created out of ego. You know, it's showing us that we are all formless. We are all interconnected. And we are very dependent on uh, the air and the breath. And it's really just like life does, return us to life. But you're right. Will we get the lesson? Few will. I think in every big shaking, a few do get awakened because pain is such a great portal of consciousness. And this is a painful moment to the ego of humanity. Few will come to the side of the awakened. And yes, for the most part, the stream of the mass consciousness will stay attached till the next one. Then a few more come and a few more come. But it is slow and gradual because it appears, this is the surrender I had to relent to, that this dimension thrives on fear and control. So... We're, you know, we're, we're going against mainstream. Mainstream is predicated on fear and control and suffering through fear and control. But there is another way. And we will invite people to join us in this other way. But it's their choice how they want to live this life. It's not bad. It's where they are in their level of consciousness. So I've learned to release. Doctor, in an uh, attempt 
belated attempt to before um, before we conclude our conversation to um, uh, prevent myself from placing you on the kind of pedestals that you um, continually remind us are unnecessary and illusory. Tell us when was the last time that you lost your temper, lost your composure, lost your connection with your authentic self and in and, and what kind of circumstances? For example, me yesterday, I was supposed to do an Instagram meditation thing, ironically, with uh, Jay Shetty, a friend of mine who does a lot of sort of meditation. Oh, yeah, he's lovely, isn't he? Um, and I, like, I, I don't have the app on my phone so that I don't spend all my time gazing at Instagram and getting caught up in that stuff. So I had to get the, I had to put the app on my phone, then get my password and all of that stuff. And then I had to learn how to do it because normally I do all these things somewhat remotely. I got so frustrated with that process of putting those passes in. Like I had, I just, I could just see through a sort of a, a tiny window this is not serious. Don't lose your temper. I could say, but actually I was going, oh, for fuck's sake, what the fuck? Where's the fucking thing? Like, and I'd like call my wife up and tried to blame my wife for it. Hey, I can't work this thing. You, you're young. How does this work? You know, and like that was the last, and there was part of me was somewhat aware that what I was doing was ridiculous. When did you last have that? That was yesterday for me, so it's less than Oh my hours. God, I have them daily because I have a 17-year-old. It's her fault. She's demonic. Oh. She's a monster. She's absolutely monstrously disobedient. And you live with a 17-year-old and then you'll absolve me. But no, no, I'm just joking. I'm blaming her, right? Uh, oh my goodness. I, I lose my temper every day. It's, it's Every day. Every day. And you sit here and you tell us that we've got to go through portals of enlightenment. No, but let me tell you, so I, I, I am I'm being facetious. I don't really lose my shit every day because I have, you know, worked hard. However, I still, I should really not be losing it at all the way I do. So I, I, I am not by any means uh, this pristine person. And I, I, when I feel that my kid is really <laughs> relaxing too much and like i'm like what have i taught her you know i taught her to relax but not this much you know and then i'm like come on come back to mainstream do some work care about your grades i then feel i've failed her you know i've like taken her too much to the wild side so again i feel like i've effed up and then i scream at her i go you know you need to care and she's like but you told me don't care i said well not don't care so much you have to care a little bit. You have to hit the right balance, woman. <laughs> so, but I, 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 like you, can see that it's such nonsense and such ego. And I'm very quick to apologize. Like I told you, my daughter said, you, you deflect, you don't reflect. And I love it. And I want to see that I, I mean, I'm 100% fallible and just unconscious all the time. But I love it. You know, when I get to see, I go, ah, who do you think you are? Go back to the mat shut your mouth and go practice, you know, and I love it. I need, I need to slap myself spiritually every day. I want to wake up every day. I don't want to be complacent. I haven't arrived anywhere. You know, it's always a process and a journey. Are you, do you, do you formally meditate a couple of times a day? Or? I formally meditate on my own and then off late uh, with the with this virus, I've been meditating every day with my communities, so people can join me there, and I do it for free. Where? Every single day, I do it with them. On Instagram or? On fa on Facebook on a Facebook page that they can find through my main Facebook page, which is Dr. Shafali Sabari, and they can find me. Ah. 
Oh, I'll make sure that we do. And, and uh, well, I, I'm so grateful to you for giving us this time and giving us this education. And I wanted to, sometimes I, when I have guests, I'd like to bring my children in front of them, being as I am somewhat pagan still and thinking that there could be some projected glory or some emanation that they may yet receive just from being seen by you for a moment. So, so Russell, I know that in, in the early part of the interview, you were a little pixelated, but I think that's great because it was pixelated at the point when we were talking about the form and the formless. And I would just challenge your readers or, or listeners, viewers, to not get attached to the form, you know, and that you keep it in as part of the interview because it's so great that people have to adjust their senses and attune to another level and not get it handed to them on the form-based level. This is what this virus is teaching us. Your form-based habits have been lambasted. It's okay. You can still get wisdom, you know, and it, it was just so, so perfect. I hope you, you keep it and I hope you... I was actually is- pixelating in reality in that moment. My form, I'm becoming so enlightened, Doctor, that I was actually merging with the air around me. <laughs> It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks for your time. I hope we get to do more things. I hope we get to meet in the world when things are um, back to normal. I don't yeah, but I will talk about a new book that's on pre-order right now. It's really for the times. It's for parents to help their children. It's called Superpowered, Transforming Anxiety into Courage, Confidence and Resilience. This is not the actual book. It's just the cover. Um, it's called Superpowered. So if people will, will pre-order it, it's for parents to help children deal, transcend, and cope with anxiety. Not get rid of it, but develop a new, profound, powerful relationship to anxiety. I can think of no better person to tutor us in how to deal with those kind of complex feelings. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin with Dr. Shafali there. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. Tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets. Use the hashtag Under the Skin. Sign up to my mailing list at russellbrand.com. Get exclusive news and new content. In the meantime, why don't you go back and listen to Byron Katie. She's a unique and brilliant witch woman. Or Gabor Matte, the mad wizard. Brilliant man. Keep checking out my YouTube channel daily for new videos. And I thank you warmly from the bottom of my ass for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media.